on the podcast, I have with me Jan Keck. Jan is the founder of Ask Deep Questions, which is an amazing company. And uh, I think it has coaching elements and it has a physical product as well. Uh, really, it's about bringing people together and creating deeper conversations. But I'd love to hear in your own words, yeah, what you, what you say to people when they ask you what you do. So my kind of one sentence answer when people ask me that question is usually I help people feel less alone. Mm. Because that is enough to uh, get them intrigued and ask, so tell me more, how do you do that? And that is where my answer always changes. Like, I feel like I've never been able to, to have a good, like one paragraph answer, but um, it all started, like you said, with this physical product, which is a deck of cards that we'll probably chat about in a moment. For sure. Um, that just helps people get from small talk to really deep, meaningful conversations and then also connections. And I've been in the last few years running my own experiences and workshops, helping people kind of move through the small talk and get beyond it, but also training other facilitators on how they can create more engaging workshops. Now, of course, online, not just in person yeah. um, that that actually facilitate these connections for people. Mm -hmm. That's I really want to get into the, the history of that, but just quickly while we're on the topic with the new normal, this virtual uh, work from home situation, do you find that your work has gotten harder, easier? I mean, I imagine it's more important now that we're separated physically. How do you find it facilitating connection with this technological barrier that we find ourselves hidden behind? So. I am a person when I used to host events, experiences in person, the first thing we always do is we take our phones, we turn it off, yeah. we put it in our bag. Sometimes I even have people create these cell phone sleeping bags out of a padded envelope and yeah. you can like customize yeah. it. You put your cell phone in, you seal it up. And um, at one point at a retreat, we even put like a wax seal on it. So wow. you could tell if somebody opened it uh, <laughs> and kind of try to get access to the phone. But I always felt that technology, especially our cell phones, are one of the biggest distractions when it comes to being present with each other. And yeah. being present is like the number one thing when you want to connect with someone. Yeah, um, you can because feel I think somebody yeah. is not present with you and it, 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 it puts up your guard. So if you're sharing like a personal story and somebody's kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And you, you instantly you shut down and you go, I don't want to I don't want to share this with this person. Yeah. And I think we've all experienced that, like it makes you feel so unimportant. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, the opposite of feeling seen and heard. And that's, again, going back to making people feel less alone, making them feeling feel feeling heard and feeling seen is such a big part of my work that when I was not able to do anything in person anymore, I struggled. Yeah, I was yeah. not sure if it's even possible, like just the fact that both of us are having a conversation right now and now I'm looking at my camera. But if I'm now looking at you, I'm not, we're not making eye contact. And yeah. that's, again, another thing that is really challenging. Like, how can you feel connected to someone that seemingly looks at your chin or like at your yeah. forehead? Or yeah. is, it's, it's really hard. But I think I've gotten to the point where I've experimented enough with different ways we can create these moments, these, I call them magical human moments, even mm -hmm. online that um, make you forget that you're talking or looking at a screen. Right. And I really want to get into some of those because I think it's really uh, it's, it's fascinating and really important for people to figure out. And it is something as simple as when you're speaking, looking directly into your webcam to give the listener that sense that you're looking right in their eyes, even though it feels like you're talking to a robot. 
like my my camera mm -hmm. looks like Wally or something. So it's like I feel like I'm making eye contact with a little robot. But for the other person, you are giving them that gift of feeling seen and and heard or spoken to directly. Um, so I really want to mm -hmm. get into those magical moments and how you create those through a virtual, um, you know, uh, situation room, whatever you want to call it. But first, let's go back. Why do you think you found yourself doing this kind of work? Because it seems like you're also a bit of a trailblazer in this sense where this isn't exactly like being a yoga instructor or a fitness trainer where there's a million people doing this kind of work. This seems to be quite unique, at least for, from my experience. Um, so how did you find yourself doing this? Not in a straight path. And um, I think the, the one thing that I've experienced, like there was this one moment in my life where I'm like, it, it, it was this weekend retreat that I attended and I now jokingly say that in 48 hours, I made 30 new friends. And up until this point, I, uh, so I grew up in Germany, I moved uh -huh. to Canada and I didn't know a single person. I had like one acquaintance that was like an exchange student that I knew from, from my university. And she let me crash on her couch for the first mm -hmm. few days until I figured out like where to live and all of that. Can um, I ask? But you? I had to, yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but I was just wondering, can I ask you what brought you to Canada in the first place? What made you decide to come? Um, it, I got a scholarship to do my uh, internship semester as part of my studies abroad. And I could basically choose where I want to go. And at that point, I already had spent a year traveling in Australia, New Zealand. Mm. I'm like, okay, check. I met some really cool Australia, uh, uh, really cool Canadians that I actually went skydiving with in New Zealand. I'm like, okay, next, next country that I want to go to is going to be Canada. Ah. And uh, also funny story, I, I thought that I was going to be a documentary filmmaker at that time. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to find a documentary film production company to do my internship with. And um, while I was in Munich in Germany at a documentary film festival, I ended up going to this industry party. Uh, but I didn't, first of all, I didn't know that it was an industry only party. I just went to a workshop and they said, okay, everybody, we're going to meet over there for like some drinks and food. And I had no idea that it was like invite only. And I just walked, confidently walked past the line, just walked in, nobody asked me any questions. And there was this huge buffet and like open bar, I'm like this is really cool. <laughs> and only afterwards I realized, oh, they were like checking off names from a guest list, but I was already inside. And then I started chatting with some filmmakers. They ended up being from Canada, from Toronto. And we hit it off over the free drink and free food. And they thought this was hilarious that I ended up at that party. Yeah. Um, and the next day I watched their movie and then got interviewed by German television about their movie. Uh, and we kind of just stayed in touch because right. now we had the, our first kind of moment. Then I get interviewed about their film. They were asking me, so what did you say? We didn't understand. Like, we don't know German. Like, right. I hope you said something good. <laughs> it was a great film. So uh, they hooked me up with an internship in, in Toronto. And that's how I ended up here. Amazing how that happens, eh? Just a random chance meeting or, you know, strolling somewhere where you're, where you're not technically supposed to be. And then, yeah, your whole life trajectory changes. I always find that so, so interesting how that happens. Great. So yeah. you come to Canada and you don't know anyone. You're crashing on your friend's couch. Uh, so yeah, what, what happens next? I basically had to rebuild my whole social network from scratch. And at that time, I didn't really know what I was doing. I feel like now I've kind of figured out the kind of steps and almost like a structure or like a formula I can follow. But then it was just, um, I want to connect with other people that are like me. So first community that I joined was couch surfing. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but yeah. the idea is that you stay on somebody else's couch for free. This was before Airbnb was a thing. Yeah. And um, well. you would, instead of staying at a hotel, you would meet the locals. And they had a great community with d- tons of meetups happening every week. And we went to uh, the Toronto Island for hikes and photo walks. And I connected with a lot of people there. And then it turned out that uh, I fell in love with a girl, ended up staying, um, extending visas, whole like other long immigration story. Um, but most of the people that I met through Couchsurfing, they were here just temporarily for a few weeks, few months, few mm-hmm. maybe a year, and then moved back. So right. most of the circle that I built kind of disappeared again. Right. And um, it wasn't until that one weekend retreat where I had this epiphany and realized, oh my God, most of the connections that I have are super surface level. Mm-hmm. Like I was so proud of getting to like 500 LinkedIn connections. Yeah. But that didn't really mean anything. I didn't know 500 people. I just accepted yeah. everyone uh, if, if they if I knew them or not. I was just yeah. like, accept, accept, accept. Um, right. And I yeah, it, it was on that weekend retreat where I experienced the opposite of what this kind of connection really can feel like. And um, on the last day when everybody was saying goodbye to each other and hugging, it was really emotional and I could in a way sense or like see people's energy vibrating kind of out of their bodies. Uh, I often describe it as um, if you've ever watched the Care Bears and you know yeah. how they shoot the rainbows out of their bellies. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. That's exactly what I was imagining it happening in this room. And I got so like my, I call it my emotional battery got so supercharged that I right. almost was high on uh, something yeah. where like the next few days, weeks, everybody that I talked to could definitely sense, oh, there's something different about you. Like mm-hmm. you're so happy and you're like, you're, you're overflowing with this energy and I can feel it just being in your presence. Um, Which probably and, has a great ripple effect as well. They feel a little more charged up and, and I imagine that's probably at the heart of the philosophy of what you do is a bit of a pay it forward of positive energy, I, I would guess. Yeah, exactly. And like the the one thing that I then tried to re-engineer of what actually happened at the retreat was that I felt maybe for the first time in a really long time or maybe even ever that I found a group where I really belonged. Mm. And um, the definition that I love, uh, if, if you're familiar with Brené Brown, she has this great definition about the difference between belonging and fitting, fitting in, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, where she says, if you um, feel like you belong within a group of people, then you can be yourself. You don't have to change who you are and they accept you for that. Right. Uh, right. Versus fitting in is you change something about yourself so you get accepted by a group. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's what most people go through when we're, I don't know, in high school, middle school. Yeah. Uh, you do all these things that are not really you just so you fit in with a group of friends. Right. And um, it was that weekend that I re- really let go of pretending to be anyone except myself mm-hmm. and then just having these deep meaningful conversations and experiences because of that can i ask you um what kind of personality traits or or parts of yourself do you feel like you were hiding before that what were you conscious of oh i shouldn't talk like this or say this thing or do this what sort of things did you feel like you were holding back on i think any challenge like I didn't want to share that uh, it was hard um, moving to a new city 
that there's things going on, let's say, in relationships that I have, in like business is not going so well. Those are the things yeah. that you usually don't talk about. So hard to especially, share that. Especially, yeah, especially in a time where all we share on social media is our highlight reels, right? Yeah. Um, it's only, I feel like, in the last few years, or maybe it's just because of the people that I now surround myself with, I get more kind of vulnerable, real shares on social media um, when I scroll through my feed. But at that time, it felt really uncomfortable, really scary to say, hey, yeah, uh, I actually don't know how I'm going to pay rent next month because we don't have any projects coming in right? Um, or things like that. And I, I think about it often uh, as the difference between like, yeah, we have two things that we're told to do as entrepreneurs. Uh, we're told to deliver value to our audience and we're also told to deliver social proof as credibility that we're worth working with. And so those two things can often be at odds because one of the most valuable things you can possibly share with your audience is a vulnerable moment of honesty saying, I'm really struggling with this. And then somebody else out there, you know, you talk about feeling seen and heard. Somebody goes, oh my God, thank God it's not just me. I thought I was the only one. And especially mm -hmm. with entrepreneurship, there's so much bullshit that we, that we spew out trying to prove that we're, we've got it all together and we're ready for that big project. Or, you know, we want that big company to understand that we're professional. We've got our stuff together, but so much of it is just fudging the truth and, and sort of lying about that kind of stuff. And, and just to, to seem professional. And as a public speaking coach, I deal with it with clients who are so afraid to share any personal anecdote um, because they worry that it's unprofessional, but it's, but it's like, we're all just stopping this really important conversation in its tracks because we feel like we have to be, I, I think it's a professional thing. We feel like we have to be professional and, and that, you know, as you said on social media, it's, you know, look who I just worked with or yeah, everything's going great. But of course it's not, that's not the usual thing that happens. It's usually struggle. Um, and I want to go back to this idea too, about having 500 people on LinkedIn, but not feeling satisfied. Uh, do you know about the Dunbar number? I talk about this a lot. Yeah. 150 yeah. people. That's right. And, and I, I bring it up in a lot of my workshops because it's really useful that they've done a lot of studies saying that, you know, 150 people is all we're really evolved to, to connect with. And when we start to connect with more people than that, we actually suffer from a bit of empathy burnout and disconnection, which is really sort of painful to us is that we know too many people and there's too many people we feel like we need to impress or care about. And we just kind of shut down. Um, so when you went to this retreat and you made like 30 new friends and you felt this charged up because you were having real connections, first of all, what was this retreat that allowed you to make such good uh, friends in the first place? So the retreat was called Supernacular Weekend. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't exist in the same way anymore, um, but I think they just announced that they might be doing something virtual in, in January. But it was the idea was, and actually it was really funny too, how I found out about it was uh, I was part of a entrepreneurship Facebook group and I've attended some of their events. So I kind of knew the quality of people that are in this group. Mm. and when somebody that I didn't know, a stranger posted this really short post that said, hey, let's get outside of the city to work on our goals. Here's some info. I'm like, yes, I want to get outside of the city. Yeah. I love nature. And sometimes right. I just need to get away from everything. Yeah. Um, especially cell phone reception. Great, great uh, excuse yeah. to not be on your phone if you don't totally. have reception. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
working on, on our goals. And at this time I had a video production company with a business partner and I told her, hey, we should go to this and work on our business goals. So we both signed up and um, after I think the first evening or the, like the second day morning, we realized, oh, this is not about setting business goals. This is about setting personal goals. Hmm. And we did like um, a wheel of life assessment of all these different areas, relationships and career and health and scoring ourselves and then figuring out, okay, what are the goals we actually want to set for the rest of the year? Hmm. And um, business was just a so, such a small, small part of it. And I realized that where I was probably lacking the most was not the business, but other areas that I then got super excited to work on. Um, so it was a personal development retreat. And at, to this point, I had never heard the term personal development, like it was yeah. completely foreign to me. And it's now funny to think of, um, I attended this retreat, not knowing what it was about, and then finding something that now has become or I figured out was one of my biggest values, like mm. just the idea of growth and constant learning. Um, and yeah, it just, it just opened this whole Pandora box of like different books and podcasts and right. people to follow and work yeah. to do on myself. And right away afterwards, my business partner, she started a mastermind group with a few people from the retreat and some others. And we, met for uh we committed for one year to meet once a week in person that's actually how um our mutual friend mj how we connected was through oh, wow. that mastermind yeah. Uh, yeah that's when we met and we still have now calls every once in a while just virtually right and that group i would say became some of my closest friends here in the city because wow. we spent so much time being super vulnerable with each other yeah. of really supporting each other in our personal growth it's almost like a fast track to to yeah to being really close especially at this stage of of our lives i assume we're sort of somewhere around the same age um and uh so it's 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 when you're younger you kind of hang out with people i think it's more of the fitting in thing as you said in middle school and high school you want to hang out with people who make you feel cool make you feel like you have social status uh and 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 make you feel i don't know whether it's protected or um you know whether it's lifted up in, in the eyes of everyone else. And then your values kind of change as you get into your 20s and 30s. And then once you start to get older and you think about, you know, life and career and family and stuff like that, it, it becomes less important as to who you can have fun and have social status with and who you feel like you can really grow with. And that's true of your friends, uh, even of your family and of your, uh, the person you choose for your, for your partner. And it's really interesting this thing you mentioned about how you're supporting each other in your growth like you know there's a lot of stuff out there it says like cut out toxic people get toxic people out of your lives I find that a bit extreme sometimes it's like you know just because you have a, a difficult friendship it doesn't mean you have to like throw it away just because you're working through some things but it's interesting that we really start to feel that if we're around people who don't want to see us do well or, or, or have this idea of who we should be and what we should be, that we start to, yeah, we live up to expectations and finding people who you can, who can support your growth and you support their growth. And there's no jealousy. There's no competition there. It, it, it just makes for such a better friendship later in life. Um, and yeah, what's so interesting is also like you mentioned MJ, she now has her own group that she started. I don't know if you know this, mm -hmm. but about uh, for meaningful singles connections. So 
this idea of going, okay, I'm going to be super vulnerable. I'm, I'm going to facilitate a space where everybody can be really vulnerable and honest and open. That has a ripple effect and that carries out around. And I noticed this in so many situations. So how do you properly get people to let down their guard and share these things with one another and with you? Yeah, uh, it's not an easy thing. And everybody has a different personality as well. So some people, you might have encountered them, they're super, like they, they share something vulnerable right away. Yeah, like you yeah. just said hello, and they're already telling you like, very deep details about their yeah. personal lives. Yeah. And usually the reaction is, oh my God, that's a lot of information. I don't know what to do with it. It yeah. makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there's kind of the other way around. What if you get asked a deep vulnerable question right from the beginning that would make you feel like you're put on the spot and then that makes you uncomfortable too because you don't want to share that yet uh, if you're someone that takes a little bit more time to build that trust. And I think that's exactly what needs to happen. And I call it often my uh, campfire formula. Actually, let me see if I still have this around here. I did this recently for a video. So the idea is if you've ever been camping, you know that you can't just hold a lighter, which I also have somewhere, I think. Um, but here we go. You can't just hold the lighter up to the big log and yeah. expect <laughs> that to catch fire. Uh, you have to kind of start with, I don't know, paper, some smaller sticks and uh, tinder, and then add yeah. your kindling. And at the yeah. end, you put the big log on the fire. Yeah. And that creates that, that beautiful campfire that gives you warmth. And I see that as the, the type of connection you can have with someone, mm. but you can't skip the steps. Like you have to go through these, th this process. And um, I'll just show my cards again, because that's exactly what the cards are built up, uh, right. on. There's three different categories. There's mm. curious questions, then there's brave, and then there's vulnerable questions. Mm. And that's the same idea. If we started with the vulnerable question, probably both would be uncomfortable. But if we go through like one set of each, we'll have built that trust. Right. And the fun right. thing is that uh, if like I work a lot with groups, mm -hmm. this trust that is built works within a group, it doesn't have to be with one specific person. So if the first round, you have a conversation with one person on the curious card, the next round with a different person, you're more willing to be a little bit more vulnerable, even though you don't have that connection built with that person yet. So as a group, we can move muscle. much quicker. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, and it must it must speak to that. Also, you can practice being vulnerable so that you don't depend as much on other people to give you the signal that it's safe. You just once you practice it with other people, then you can go into a new setting and say, hey, guys, this is me. This is I'm comfortable sharing this with you. And all of a sudden they they just go great. Wow. And, and I, you know, I try to get people to do this in pitches as well, or when they're talking to investors or clients just to share a bit of who they are and why they do what they do um, mm -hmm. instead of, you know, thinking that it's too much too soon. And obviously there are those people who overshare too much too soon. Uh, and that, that can be off-putting as well, because you think, yeah, they're not building any kindling with me. They're just kind of trying to throw a log on the fire and it's not going to catch. Um, it's yeah. It's yeah. never going to happen if we're not, moving at the same speed, like we both right. have to start. So the person who's usually oversharing, they also have to start building the fire from the ground up. And then we move together. If we move at the same speed, that's where we built that trust. And I love how you said uh, feeling safe. Yeah. 
because mm -hmm. um, it's a lot like one term that has become really popular in the last few years is psychological safety. Mm. Um, Amy Edmondson did a TED, TED talk on that, which is fantastic. And I love her work because she works a lot with teams. Mm. And um, she references a study that Google did that um, they tried to figure out what makes the highest performing teams work really well together. And the number one thing was psychological safety, which is feeling safe to share ideas, uh, to admit mistakes, feeling safe to speak up in general mm. without the fear of being like shut down or made fun of or right. even being punished for yeah. saying, hey, I think this is not a good idea. Yeah. Um, if you can be in an environment where people like especially the leadership then says, OK, let's tell me more about that. Why do you think that that's right. the types of places that that are the highest performing teams? And so when you go to work with a group, what are the common um, obstacles that people will either say out loud or that you observe? Like what makes people stop from wanting to share themselves or what do they tell you that that makes them uncomfortable to share? Um, it's mostly the fear of sharing something like it, it is kind of what I sh what I said just now, the fear of being made fun of for something mm -hmm. is definitely a big one yeah. or the fear of being rejection rejected. Um, especially when it is like a more higher stakes, um, like you're meeting someone, if it's more networking yeah. uh, or even like dating, you, you don't want to get rejected. So you don't share everything, uh, everything. Yeah. And right. um, it, again, it is all about the kind of level that you share at. Hmm. Um, if you can get there slowly rather than laying everything on the table in the beginning, it'll be much more successful. That's really interesting. And I want to explore this uh, topic for a second because a lot of my clients and my audience have elevator pitch situations where they have 60 seconds, more or less, to get somebody's attention and say, hey, this is me, this is my business. Uh, and the other people, they know that the person listening probably hears 100 of these a day or 100 of these a week or whatever. And now they've got to go, okay, how can I stand out, not with some gimmick, but being really true to myself, but, but just raising these sort of emotional stakes. I talk a lot about using emotional language, using storytelling and being personal mm. and vulnerable and authentic to get people's attention because that is so few and far between. And when somebody shares something vulnerable, like not too much, not oversharing, but, but letting people in, you feel it in the room, right? I'm sure you've seen this a yep. million times when somebody, it's their turn to stand up and they go, I'm dealing with this right now. Or when I was younger, I dealt with that. Everybody just, you know, the air changes and people just kind of go, wow. And, and they, they realize they're talking about something real and important now. Um, and so when I deal with my, my uh, clients who have these elevator uh, pitches, I usually tell them to, you know, share that thing kind of right away. It should be the first thing out of your mouth, pretty much. And if you can connect it, to, it should be connected to the reason why the business exists, mm -hmm. to the customer problem. Yeah. But yeah, you don't want to say like when I was nine, I, uh, I fell down and, and broke my leg. And now I'm, you know, now I have this software company that has nothing to do with that. But, you know, it, so saying, you know, I struggled with this problem and then thus my company was born because I noticed this problem. But sharing it from that personal thing and, and then, you know, often the story is really personal. But I think there's nothing wrong with sharing that, even though, but, but it kind of comes up against what you're saying is that maybe that's too much too soon. So what would you say to people in those sort of situations who, uh, who are afraid of sharing too fast? Do you think it is good maybe for the elevator pitch not to share that thing? Do you think they should maybe try to get it out there? Is there a good way to do it? Uh, yeah, whatever you think about that, I'd love to hear. Yeah, I, I think the situation of the elevator pitch is slightly different than 
let's say sitting down at an event or uh, a party where you want to connect with someone uh, or attending one of my experiences because in an elevator pitch I would say that usually the person who's getting pitched you they're not really present in the conversation so you need to do something to get them to pay attention right. to even like right. listen and yeah. be there um, like they might be on their phone yeah. while you're doing your pitch like you need yeah. to be more interesting than what's on their screen especially so that's, that's like this challenge. I, I can't see your hands right now uh, so for all i know you could be uh you could be scrolling on the phone exactly so um to me the again the first thing is we need to be present with each other and because we have not most people have not practiced that skill whenever i i run a workshop experience I'll actually have people make some mistakes and then I tell them, hey, what were you thinking about in this last round? Like if I give you uh, or if I give a question to, let's say, you and another person of sharing your favorite vacation story and I don't give you any other instructions and I just tell you, okay, you have five minutes and both of you share. Um, while the other person is telling their vacation story, you're in your head still looking for yours. Yeah. And you're not really listening. You're just thinking, oh, what story do I want to tell? And which story is going to make me look good? Yeah. And um, instead of, okay, you tell your story and I'm just going to be present. I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask you follow-up questions. And then until you finish sharing and you feel seen and heard, mm. then we will switch. And I would say that 80, 90% of people you're always in your head when you're listening. You're we not do that all the really time, there. Right? We're just yeah. staring. We're just staring. And that's like, what's really interesting is even as you and I are having this conversation now, I'm trying my best to go, okay, don't think of the next question you're going to ask Jan. Just be it's with It's more challenging when you're, when you're interviewing and yeah. uh, like you have to almost wear the two hats. So True, but I think this, this again is a little bit of a, a unique situation in that case. But, but the, 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 the principle is really interesting to practice. And so my work uh, deals with a lot of mindfulness meditation. So just paying attention to the breath, but also paying it. You can, you can use mindfulness for other situations, right? You can do mindful teeth brushing where you're like, okay, I'm not going to think about what I'm going to do after I brush my teeth, but I'm just focusing on the way the bristles feel against my teeth and the movement of my hand and how I'm standing and how I'm breathing. And then you, of course, you have mindful listening where you're like, okay, I'm not just going to mm -hmm. stare at his face until he stops speaking and then say my thing that I've perfectly crafted in my head as I've not been listening to him is to go, okay, before I think of the next question, before I think of where I want to steer the conversation next, how can I really, really listen? And that's really, that's what, what, what actors do. And that's one thing that I, uh, that we teach our clients as well is that as a public speaker or a communicator, you can't just be a performer. You like part of being a performer is also being a listener. And one of the best things you can do as an actor is be on stage and truly listen to your scene partner, not go, okay, my next line is this. So I'm just going to wait till he shuts up is to really stand there and, and listen and find the information. What is this character saying to me? What do they mean? What do they want? And then I take that information and then, you know, my next line comes from that impetus of what they said and how they made me feel. And when people, when actors are doing that, then it really feels uh, real, especially in, in stage acting. Um, and so that practice for me, it's mindfulness, but how do you get people to practice that kind of active listening and not just wait to speak? In person, it's probably different than doing it through zoom or virtually. Right. Um, I would say, because in person, it's a lot easier. And again, first thing is removing the distraction so you don't have a phone like buzzing in your pocket, like putting it 
actually in a bag or away from your body. So mm -hmm. that's not there. Um, and then just giving the instructions. And it is kind of like practicing meditation. Like it's not, you're not going to be able to listen to the other person every single word and really like set, get, get a sense of um, not just what they're saying, but what their body language is doing, what their facial expressions, their gestures, like taking everything in, uh, like what's happening in the room. There, there's, I would say, uh, like different levels that you can listen to. And like the first one is where we're most of the time is like in our own head. Um, but how can we put the attention on the other person and take in like everything? Um, that that's the challenge and it's going to be the same thing as with meditation. I love the analogy of like you're sitting next to a busy street and you're just seeing the cars kind of drive by and um, your goal is to just sit and look at the traffic. Don't get stuck with one car and follow it down the road. Mm. Uh, same thing with like listening. You're probably going to get distracted as soon as you notice, try to put your focus back on the other person. Right. And, and that's a big um, lesson that, that mindfulness meditation mm -hmm. teaches, which I'm always plugging mindfulness meditation. I know it's not for everybody maybe, but it, it's, it's, it's it taught me and, and, you know, so many of my clients so much about being able to just bring your thoughts back to the present moment. Because for me, there is no uh, public speaking skill without presence, mindfulness being in the present moment. And of course, mm -hmm. with, with, with uh, one on one or, or, or group conversations as well. If your mind is elsewhere, people will sense that on some level. And, and again, we talk about the external, uh, the external indicator that somebody's not listening with the phone. We all deal with that now. It's like a, you know, talk about a global pandemic, like people not paying attention to you while you're trying to talk to them. You just want to slap the phone out of their hand. Uh, and that just makes you feel so like, un, yeah, not seen and heard and not listened to. But there are other indicators that aren't just as so clear as the phone, right? And it can be as simple as just a little glazed look in the eyes, or it can just be, yeah, the slight shift of the body language away and the head kind of turned back, you know, the attention sort of wants to go over here. Um, and so like that practice, the mindfulness meditation practice of just being present and, and also not getting mad at yourself when your mind does go away, because when we're talking, you know, right now too, but in these conversations, I'm sure somebody will say something and you get excited, right? You go, oh, that's cool. That reminds me of this thing that happened to me. And maybe I can say that, which is not wrong or it's not selfish, but mm -hmm. how do you channel that into a really good conversation situation and come back to that? So are there any rules that you have for having really good conversations that you can, you can share? I think when I just have a regular conversation with someone. My goal is to really understand how the person was feeling when they're telling a story. So my questions will be kind of going towards that, that direction. But again, we're not going to go super deep, super quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and some people might not want to have like a really deep, meaningful conversation. So I when you're feelings. like, I'm now imagining like networking events that I've attended. And sometimes, uh, People just ask me what I do and then I give them like a little bit of a vulnerable, deeper answer and then they just walk away. Yeah. And I'm like, glad I avoided that conversation. That would have right. been horrible right. to continue this. Yeah. Um, but then there's others who like, you see, you see the spark in their eyes. Like you see them leaning in. You see their like eyes get bigger and they're like, yeah. oh, tell me more. Like yeah. those are the people that you want to uh, kind of have more conversations with. And to me, it's all about telling stories. Mm. Um, like stories, how is how we connect, how we've connected for thousands of years. So the more we can 
be also better storytellers when we're answering a question rather than just telling the answer. Uh, and as a great example, so what do you do? I'm a lawyer, period. Like it's like yeah. a dead end. Yeah. Come to the conversation. Like Nobody knows how to continue from that. Note. Yeah. But then if you tell, well, when I was uh, growing up, there was this issue with my neighbors and I always felt that that need for like proving right from wrong. And then I became a lawyer and this is now what I do. Mm. Totally different. Yeah. Um, I just made the story up. I actually don't know if that, uh, if anybody has that specific story. <laughs> I'm sure but somebody out get there. The idea. Yeah. 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 Uh, and every successful, well, most successful people that we see that, that are shown to us in the media as, as examples of, let's say, thought leaders or whatever. We, I hate that term sometimes, but like whatever we want to call it uh, of, of leading people in their industry, whatever it is. Right. Like I, I often use Jamie Oliver as an example, like he's not the best cook in the world, I think not even close. I, I don't think any like top chefs would say he's the best uh, at cooking, but he's the best at turning it into a narrative and into a story. Why is cooking mm -hmm. so important? It's because it's about family. It's about togetherness. It's about health. It's about, you know, passing knowledge down from generations. And then he can go and give a TED talk and win the best TED talk of the year, not from his skill at chopping onions and frying them, and that, but, but from his ability to tell stories around his passion, which is food. Um, and, and so this idea of storytelling, what do you think makes a good story? I have my own stuff because we teach, we have a whole module on storytelling where we teach the hero's journey. Uh, we talk about the evolution uh, of story. The fact that there's a great book called The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. I don't know if you've read that. It's a really fantastic no. book. And it's about how we're all evolved to be affected by story and by fiction and, and why it's so deeply ingrained inside us. And we, you know, we take that for granted a lot. Like, of course, everybody loves a story or movies or books, but why is that? And then he sort of goes into that. But for you, what makes, what are the elements of a good story? You say people uh, need to learn to be better storytellers. So are there any, is there a template you have? Are there, are there things you can hit? What in your mind makes a good story? Yeah. Oh man, I, I just had so many ideas pop in my head. So let's see, I, I'm just going to start with one. We'll see where it goes. Sure. The first thing that I, um, kind of came up to me was the idea of making it resonate with someone else. Mm -hmm. And often we might think, oh, I have this story, but it's so unique to me. Nobody else has had this experience. Nobody can relate to that. Mm -hmm. But once mm -hmm. you add the layer of how you felt in that moment and you describe those feelings, um, and I've uh, like one friend of mine, Marsha Shandor, she's like one of the top storytelling coaches, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, she has this amazing tip of describing the physical sensations of the non-physical feeling in your body. Mm. Like my palms were sweaty, my, like my heart was beating so fast in my chest, Yeah. Um, like a horse galloping or whatever it is. Like the more visual or you can describe that feeling, not with, I was nervous, but what did that nervousness feel like in your body? Right. Everybody right. has felt that before. And even though they might not have been in the same situation, it will resonate with them. And the fun thing is when somebody tells a story and uh, you're listening to it, your body, because of, I think, the mirror neurons, yeah, you're right. the storytelling expert, uh, your, your brain can actually uh, distinguish, is that story something I'm listening to or is that uh, something I'm experiencing? Yeah, um, there's a great study. Uh, I don't know if, if yeah. you've read this one, but it's I think it's in the storytelling animal and I've come across it in other uh, like Malcolm Gladwell, I think references it, but they had participants uh, 
watch something on TV, something uh, that would trigger the emotion of disgust. So something gross on TV, they would read something gross and then they'd like drink a, a bitter, gross drink. And the disgust was almost equally triggered in the same situation, in, in all three situations was the same level of disgust. So even reading words on a page about something gross fires the same disgust receptors in your brain mm. or the same neural synapses are firing in your brain from just reading about somebody else going through something disgusting. So it's an amazing example of that, of how people are experiencing um, I, I mean, I think the story has to be told to a certain level of detail and 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 craft to, to make people like if you just go, oh, I saw, you know, some dog poop on the ground. It's kind of like, oh, that's gross. But if somebody <laughs> describes it a little more or, or like really talks about how gross it is, then then it'll really fire uh, the disgust receptor. But of course, that works for sadness. That works for happiness. That works for excitement, nervousness, all the different emotions that we want our audience to be feeling. And one thing I always say is that um, emotions are linked to memory. When your emotions are fired up, you're more likely to recall something later. And that's what you want. That is what makes a good movie is something that you keep thinking about afterwards. You can remember mm -hmm. the moments in the plot. And of course, as a business person, if you tell your pitch, not everybody's going to open their phone right away and Google you. But maybe three days later, they're like, man, who is that person? And then they'll look you up or, or I should really give that guy an email or, you know, having yourself be remembered by people is so important just for that, you know, those um, connections to be made. So yeah, so we have this visceral description of what you were going through, talking about the physical sensations of emotions, wanting to uh, make those emotions live. What else do we have that do you think that we can uh, make a really good story with? Um, I knew that that, that you're going to ask me that, and I had some <laughs> other other thoughts that floated Should by, I? kind of like the cars on the highway. It, yeah. I didn't hang on to it long enough, so I, I should totally I go and then we'll it. and then we'll see if we can uh, sure kind of create a pinball effect. Yeah. So Sounds for me, good. another thing is uh, it's got to be character driven. So if it's just about the events, then it's not as interesting. But if it's about you at the center, yeah, what your experience was, or if it's hypothetical or historical third person in some way, then it's got to be about people. And I always say like Pixar is there's that great tweet that's like, Pixar is like, what if toys had feelings? What if fish had feelings? What if robots had feelings? What if feelings had feelings? You know, with the movie Inside Out, it's a really funny tweet, but it's about mm -hmm. personifying toys or animals or, or, or robots or cars. That's why we connect with them. If the cars didn't talk, if they didn't have facial expressions, uh, if they didn't have emotional lives, we wouldn't watch these movies. But because Pixar is so good at creating relationships and emotions out of these dinosaurs and all these different things that they do, that's what makes us really, really, uh, really love them. So putting people and people's emotions and feelings and relationships and how the events affect them at the center of the story is also uh, really important. Yeah, I, I, I found the one thought that that escaped yes, earlier. I knew it would work. Um, yeah, <laughs> you, you triggered something. Um, I And we talked about this earlier already around the idea of being vulnerable. What I think makes a good story is if you have some kind of challenge that is being overcome. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of also part of the, the hero's journey in a little bit. Like nobody wants to hear the success story of all the amazing things that you've done, yeah. Um, yeah. which sounds a lot like bragging. But if you tell the story of how you, you overcome all the challenges to get to where you are now, that's yeah. what, again, relates to people and they buy into your character of not having everything just show up magically and everything's yeah. great. It's, um, hard to, so it's hard to yeah. relate to people who don't have any problems. 
you know? Yeah, why, exactly. Why would you want to listen to somebody who just wakes up in the morning, feels great, crushes it at work, comes home to a perfect life, uh, eats like a carb-free dinner and goes to bed at 6 p.m. and wakes up the next morning and is totally happy to do that every day. That's so boring. And and there's a huge cottage industry around that, the like, you know, 5 a.m. wake up gang and all this. And it's all about, and to me, it's kind of like fake positivity. It's just like, you know, this talking about highlights on Instagram. And it feels very unsatisfying mm -hmm. to me. Now, there's definitely... Uh, room for like motivational stuff of about like, but I think things are way more motivational if they are if they do start from a place of struggle, uh, and this the hero's journey thing is is all about too. It's like starting with an ordinary life, so it doesn't have to start from struggle, and it can kind of be like you're starting in this kind of world where everything's sort of okay, more or less. You know, maybe it's not perfect or great, but things are kind of okay, and then something happens. For you, it's this moving to Toronto. You came to Toronto first, right? From from Germany. Yep. So for you and your hero's journey, it's it's moving to Toronto. That's the inciting incident. And then you're in what we call in the hero's journey, the special world. So you move from the ordinary world to the special world. Now everything is unfamiliar. And now uh, we talk about tests and allies and enemies. Things are thrown at you. You know, from living in, in uh, two different countries other than Canada for extended periods of time, I've been there where I'm like, just getting a coffee is such a test. It's such a, a tricky thing. Just going and, and speaking the language and trying to navigate, like, where do I go get a jar of peanut butter? I couldn't find peanut butter when I was living in Spain for like five months. I couldn't figure out what the word was. Mm -hmm. I was trying to say it different ways and I couldn't communicate. And I just wanted some goddamn peanut butter to remind myself of Canada and home and I couldn't find it. And that was like, I, I was trying to do that for so long. Um, so that special world is where all the like dif difficulty things happen. And, and you know, in, in TV language or, or drama language, sometimes we say that's a fish out of water story. Somebody who's mm -hmm. not used to where they are and they're just like, they don't understand the customs. They don't understand the etiquette. They don't understand the, the uh, you know, just how to sort of relate to people, language barriers, cultural barriers, whatever you have. Um, and then eventually you get back to the ordinary world because the hero's journey is a circle and all the tests, allies, enemies, all the difficult, the slaying of the dragon, the going into the cave, the getting of the treasure, that helps you actually come home in a way. And even if coming home doesn't mean going to your geographical home, it means maybe finding a new home. And, 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 it, and also the last step uh, of the hero's journey is called the elixir, which is the prize. And there's always that prize for going on the journey, whether it's a new perspective, a new friend, multiple new friends, uh, or, 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 you know, finding your career, all that kind of things. Uh, it, that is the story that we are loved because the hero's journey shows up in literature, film, all like, you know, Lord of the Rings, mm. uh, Hunger Games, Star Wars, The Matrix, Finding Nemo, and, and all the, you know, and of course, epic literature as well. That this, we're so used to this story structure. And it's somehow, it's like, in all cultures around the world, Joseph Campbell in his book, uh, I think the hero with the thousand faces, he found this, that like all around the world across time, we follow the same kind of narrative structure in many, in many places. Uh, so to tell that story to someone else, you're almost talking to their DNA and saying, this is what we all find interesting, compelling. Struggle, 
journey and then coming full circle back to something but but better stronger with something uh, and i so i always try to teach a really condensed version of the hero's journey but those understanding those principles underneath that will really help you tell a better story um and you've so how did you know that this was going to be such a big part of your business this storytelling how did you know that for ask deep questions because on your website i've seen it you you lead with your story like my name is jan i i realized i couldn't have deep conversations with people and i was felt alone how did you how did you know that this was the right way to go? Um, it probably was from watching the people that I admire and mm. seeing what they're what they were doing. Um, and I don't even remember when it started, but I always felt like I was a really bad copywriter. Like mm. writing in school barely like barely uh, passed like my 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 great grades in every year in German as in well German yeah in German so writing any essays i always struggle getting more, down more than one page because mm -hmm. i'm like well here's it that's the information what else <laughs> do you need like why do i need to tell more i'm like thinking of like an efficient german right um, <laughs> no more information needed you got what the the main part so i always struggled with this and kept telling myself for a very long time that i'm a very bad writer or copywriter mm. and it wasn't until i <clears throat> um I got into this practice of writing and journaling and then joining a writer's group. Although I was not a writer, I went there more for the connections and the conversations than to write. But then we were there and we did quiet, like 20, 30 minutes of writing. I started writing things. Mm. And um, at one point I just started sharing some of it and it resonated with people. And I think that's that's the first part where you're like, oh, there's some something worked here. Like, what is it? Like, I'm always... Uh, like my my I have a bachelor degree in audiovisual engineering, so I feel like oftentimes my engineering brain get turned gets turned on. I'm like, hey, I just shared this Facebook post and I got a bunch more comments than usual. Like, what what was it about it? Reverse oh, engineering. I was yeah. I was telling a story. I was sharing right. something vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I was being real. It stood out from all the other posts on on people's newsfeed, mm. and. Um, as I knew this, I started challenging my challenging myself more. There's another person or a mastermind. Uh, her name is uh, Kate, um, and she also is a storytelling coach. And she had the storytelling show. And at one point, she was just asking, "Hey, uh, do you want to tell a story at the storytelling show?" And um, I work with her to create my story database. So we spend, I think, two three hours of her just asking me questions and me sharing everything from like childhood to to uh, up to the present day and she uh, basically gave me a document with here's your stories and here's what value it represents in each story right and i used that as like my yeah database to go back to and like okay there's one story that i really feel like i want to share or explore just for myself again looking at personal growth yeah. going back at the big decisions you've made in life there's probably something you can learn about yourself of why you made the decision and right. going back and trying to get to all the feelings. Also something that was very foreign to me at that time, yeah. just in terms of vocabulary, I never felt I had the vocabulary in German or English hmm. to describe or talk about feelings very much. Wow. So I used that as like a, a challenge to get better at it. And then I did her storytelling show. I think I did it twice. I did some other storytelling shows. I did speaker slam. Um, sharing yeah. stories yeah. in front of larger audiences. Right. And I just got more used to it, more comfortable with it. And 
if I didn't get the reaction, like people coming up afterwards and saying, hey, this really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing it. I probably would have stopped. It happens so, every time yeah. I, I find, like mostly I, I use, uh, I, I, um, I go off, yeah, public speaking events that I do or social media posts when I share something uh, personal and then people give that reaction of thank you for sharing this or that was really, you know, interesting to read. And people, sometimes people who I know in my life will tell me in person, I read your Instagram post and it was like, really, I, I really, I feel the same way or something. It's so surprising because you sort of just do it. I mean, at least for me, I do social media because I kind of feel like I have to as a business owner. I don't really like it. I don't feel like totally I can be myself on it. But, you know, when I do kind of go, okay, I'll just share this little thing. And I don't even really necessarily think of it much after I post it. And then people really resonate with you go, okay, there's, yeah, there's something here. And if I can just keep kind of peeling back the layers of like trying to put on some kind of thing for people and just be more authentic and vulnerable and share those things that we can all relate to, 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 to fight against the tide of bullshit and the tide of, of, you know, fake positivity or judgment of other people or, you know, self-righteousness that we, that we see online. Uh, yeah, it just, it, it works and it, and it feels, it feels easy because then you feel like you don't have to remember 10 different personalities that you've created. Uh, you can just try to be, be sort of yourself as much as possible before we go. Cause uh, we're almost at the time. I'd love for you to take me through a couple of these deep questions. Maybe we can do one curiosity, one brave and one vulnerable. Is that, is that cool? Or do you have a different format sure. in this situation? Uh, well, I, I, I have three random cards that are still sitting on my desk. Um, I don't even know what questions they are. So they're completely sure. random. Great. I don't think we'll have time to answer each one of them, but at least okay. you get a sense uh, of what they are. So the curious one is, and I'm, let's see if my camera can focus. What are you most grateful for in your life? Mm. For me, it's my fiance, Sarah. And my nice. dog, Matilda. Did I just hear your dog or your fiance go like, ah? My, that was my fiance. My dog, uh, okay. my dog makes different <laughs> sounds, usually a lot, very barking. And I'm nice. not saying it just because she's beside me. I would, I would say that anyways. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. You're, you're, you're covered. Nice. Um, I would probably say right now it's my... Uh, spending quality time with my two-year-old son. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, all right. Brave. This might uh, we might not have time for for this right. one, uh, but if you could relive a single moment of your life, which wow. one would you pick? That's amazing. I've actually never thought, heard of, or thought of that question before. That's really that's really quite interesting. That that's kind of where like brave questions, especially the vulnerable ones, I often describe as questions you might not have ever asked yourself or anyone. Right. Um, so usually when people pick up the question, it's not like, oh, here's my answer is they actually have to take a moment to find the answer mm -hmm. or think about what it could be. And I have kind of my own strategy of replying to those sometimes, which is just starting to talk and see where it goes. Yeah. Because the goal again is not, there's no right or wrong answer here. Mm. The goal is to share something that helps you connect with the other person. Right. And sometimes right. reading a question triggers a memory. Yeah. And you just share yeah. the story of that memory rather than answering the question right. works oftentimes better. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so here's our vulnerable question. How do you want to be remembered? Great. Um, now, do you have, Jan, do you have a hard stop at 12 or can we go into that just for a couple minutes? Um, I unfortunately have something that I need That's to get okay. to. Okay. I'm, I would love to have you back at some point and maybe uh, try a bit of these. I'm sorry we didn't get to more of those because they're so fascinating. Um, I feel like we maybe in it, uh, like we maybe answered some of them sort of 
in the way that we were talking, I'm sure some mm -hmm. of them get about, you know, life decisions that you've made and, and things that you struggle with. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you or if they want to find your work, where can they go and, and find you? Because my name is a little bit hard to spell, uh, Jan Keck, you can just go to askdeepquestions.com. Right. Uh, and that links to the cards and all the other work that I do with teams and, and facilitators virtually and in person. Askdeepquestions.com. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and, and I can't wait to, uh, to talk to you again, hopefully, and, and then go deeper into this stuff. But it was just a real pleasure. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much. Next time we'll, we'll answer some more questions on the yes. cards. Awesome. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you.